Hi, I'm Tiffany Patlin, host of the Tiffany Talks Health and Wellness Podcast, where I discuss tools, tips, and techniques to heal your mind, body, and soul. I am on a godly mission to heal the world. Thanks for joining me today on the Tiffany Talks podcast show, uh, where I have John Callis. He is a survivor of childhood trauma, rape, and attempted suicide. His expertise comes from his life's experience with mental health issues to living a healthy and successful life as a Hollywood director. That's awesome. He speaks your language because he went through it. I, I understand that completely. That's amazing. Um, because you, there's just something to be said about when you've experienced it, opposed to somebody who hasn't, they might understand it, but there's just something when you've been through it. Um, he is also a member of the Directors Guild of America since 1983, an advocate for mental health, an active member of NAMI, and is a voice in the mental health field. His commitment to helping others led him to share his trauma and how he learned to cope with them and become successful in his raw and honest memoir, when the rain stops. Thank you so much, John, for being here today. Thanks for having me, Tiffany. Uh, I I just love everything that you're doing, and I'm really sorry to learn what you've gone through. Um, I would just love if you wouldn't mind taking us, you know, along with you on that journey of what you may have experienced, you know, in the back to connect with people that might be experiencing that today. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, it, it all started when I was three years old, when my dad died. Um, after he died, I just felt very abandoned. Uh, I, I felt isolated from the world. I didn't didn't know what I was doing. I gave up on religion. I thought, God, you know, who's he anyway for taking my father away from me? And as time went on, I kept getting into more and more trouble because my mom had uh, two other kids. She had a pregnancy that she miscarried at the funeral, uh, burying my dad. So we were living in a very impoverished neighborhood. So she had to go to work and we pretty much got left alone uh, on our own as much as our neighbors or our aunt could take care of us. And as, as time went on, I got more and more angry, more and more depressed. Uh, and the older I got, I got into so much trouble that my mother, and by that time when I was 12, my stepfather entered the uh, picture, was given a choice either by the courts, either I go to reform school I'm sorry, if I go to military school or they're sending me to reform school. So at 12 years old, my mother drove me from New Jersey, put me on a train in New York City to head to Virginia to a military school. Wow. It got worse. That It was the three worst years of my life. Now, some kids are suited for military life and all that. I went involuntarily. My first night there, and I'm going to be very transparent. I had a mouth on me. I know that. So a lot of what I went through was my own doing, um, which is what I'd love to see all of your audience not have to do. 
But the first night in military school, I got knocked out three times because of my mouth. Uh, and it went downhill from there. I mean, I was beat. I had a wire hangers hit me over the back. Um, every demerit, you had to spend an hour marching instead of going free time. And the first semester there, I set a school record for how many demerits a kid could get. So I was a complete mess in, in the academy. Um, Can I ask you a question about that? Yeah, please. Did they only discipline you and not provide you with any help? Because in my mind, the first thing I'm thinking of is you're acting out because of everything you've experienced. Uh, I think that's a wonderful insight. The trouble is, is that I found out in a meeting with the headmaster that my mother had to sign a document that said that they were uh, uh, authorized to, to treat me and discipline me any way they seemed fit according to military ethics. Wow. And there was no help there. They, they didn't even explain, you know, that when they said present arms, this is what they meant. So the first morning at 6 a.m., I'm out with a bunch of other kids and they go present arms, I go like this. And they thought I was being a little jerk and they took me and walloped me because they said, you can't disrespect the flag. I said, what do you mean? Uh, you said present arms, so I'm presenting my arms. What do you want from me? I'm not trying to be joke, uh, jokester or anything. So there was no guidance. I had no rules to go by until they handed me the stick book and said, here's your rule book. And uh, so it got to the point where um, the third year there, I told my parents that I wasn't going back after that. And if they thought about sending me, they'd never see me again. During that year, a kid came in midterm who had long hair. First time I ever saw a kid with long hair. And I, I was curious about him. And so we started talking. And he taught me about the peace movement and what that was all about. And we're talking 1964, <laughs> three, something like that. The Beatles were happening. I mean, it was really cool time. And um, they, they, the um, captains and stuff beat the crap out of this kid all the time because he wouldn't cut his hair. One morning I, I left my dorm uh, room, which was like a barracks. You had a big open courtyard and it looked like a prison essentially, but without the ceiling. And I was going to the bathroom and I looked up and he was swinging on a rope. Now, they said it was suicide. I have my own theory about it, but we'll just leave it at that. No, there's no proof either way, but um, it really put me in a bad place because he and I were gonna run away and go join the peace movement. And I thought, oh good, maybe, maybe something's gonna happen. And that just tore me apart. So after that, I was sent to a private school where the first day in the school, I'm sitting in the room, just minding my own business. And a six foot three kid came up to me and said, Hey, I heard you went to military school. I said, I did. I said, did they teach you how to kill? I said, yeah, they did, but it's nothing you want to learn. He said, stand up. I want you to kill me. Oh my God. Oh, Christ almighty. Here we go again. So, um, for the next three years, I refused to fight him. And he kept calling me all these names and spitting on me and everything else. I went to the headmaster. I begged him and he said, look, I've got a really bad temper and I, I can't be held accountable if I lose my temper with this guy. You've got to deal with him. And they said, well, we've talked to him. You know, he's got his own problems. And again, nobody was able to reach out and give me help in all this. So um, at 15 years old, I decided that I didn't want the pain anymore. 
and I walked to the edge of the dock at the lake, which was partially frozen, mm -hmm. and jumped in. I wanted it to end that night, so okay. I jumped in. Uh, the water rushed into my lungs. I, the, the thought hit me as, what am I doing? I don't want to die. There's got to be something better in life. So I jumped out of the, the frozen lake, um, freezing, of course, and eventually went back to my dorm. And for some reason, the coach caught wind of what was happening, soccer coach, and he came and said, how come you're not playing sports? And I told him about my father and everything. And he said, why don't you try out? And I said, coach, I, I don't know a soccer ball from a ba basketball from a ice hockey puck. I just don't know. He said, you trust me? I said, I, I guess so. I don't know you, but I guess so. So he took me under his wing, taught me how to play soccer. And last year at school, I was nominated as co-captain of the soccer team. Well, wow. yeah, that was really cool. Uh, then this guy stands up and says, uh, we don't want him as, as a co-captain. He won't even stand up for his own rights. And, and I just lost it. I said, anytime, anywhere, use a few expletives, which we'll skip. And he said, right now, and he came and he punched me, knocked me down. I got up, he punched me, knocked me down. I got up, punched me, knocked me down. I got up and I ran at him and I kicked him right where it hurt and he went down. And I jumped on him and I was literally digging my fingernails into his eyes because I was going to pull his eyes out. And the whole team had to pull me off me and I just walked off the field. Coach came down and said, uh, you got to come back. I said, I, I was going to kill him, coach. He says, I know. And he deserved it. And even the headmaster was it was in his office watching, applauding. He finally was glad wow. that I... Yeah, I mean, Tiffany, I felt at that moment in life, the world was really crazy because if I had to show a physical violence to and stand up for myself in that vein to prove myself worth something screwy and I had to find something better. And that, for some reason, I think was one of the trigger points that started me on my journey to healing. Uh, so after that, um, I, I went to a, uh, a college and again, some more mentors started happening and I got involved in politics and things started changing. And um, I, I'll stop it there for now so we can talk a little bit more and you can ask me questions. From there, there's some cathartic moments that started to change the path. But I'm kind of giving you the background of uh, all the trauma that led up to what now. The rape part, which you mentioned earlier, a lot of women say men can't be raped and unless it's with another man, but that's not true because um, men can be mentally raped and, and made emasculated by a woman and to feel like he's nothing unless he proves himself. And that's pretty much what happened to me with this woman. Was it, how old were you when that happened with this woman? I was right around 13 years old. What, was she a, a babysitter? Was she? She was my sister's friend. And about eight, 10 years ago, I told my sister about it. And she goes, oh, my God, why didn't you tell me? And I told her who it was. And she goes, John, I'm so sorry. You know, I mean, but the damage was done already. It was it was horrible. Did your sister? I mean, do you have more? Are you the only sibling? Do you have others other than your sister? Um, my sister passed away a couple of years ago. And I do have a, um, a brother. I'm sorry to hear that. Me did too. they experience anything similar to like what you did living a life of trauma? No. They, I mean, they felt the loss of my father. I'm sure. Uh, I don't know to what degree, but my sister and I had a conversation with her. I, I sat her down one night when we were adults and I thanked her from the bottom of my heart for giving up her life because 
without a father. My sister had to take care of us at school. She made sure we had lunches. She made sure we had clean clothes. We got to school on time. I mean, and she started crying. And I said, why are you crying? She goes, nobody has ever recognized that moment. Oh, and wow. I, I, we just, uh, uh, we hugged and it was great. Yeah. I'm glad that you guys had that moment. I can understand how important that must have been for her because a child should never be put in a position to have to take care of other children. That's the parent's job. Exactly. Exactly. But she looked, she was, uh, she has a tough cookie and uh, she managed both of us. And, um, you know, I, I bless her every day for that. I love that. I love that so much. That's a sweet um, nod, you know, to her and for everything that she did. Um, one of the thoughts that I had was obviously you rose out of all of this trauma, which is amazing. But honestly, where do you think your life would have gone if you never were to have met this man, this mentor? who wanted to get you into sports, what direction do you think your life would have taken? Had you said, no, I don't trust you. Screw you. Get away from me. I've often contemplated that. And I can honestly say I probably would have made a great criminal. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't say that with pride or anything. It's just, I'm smart enough to know that I wouldn't have been just a thug. I would have done something a little bit more white collarish, but um, I, I was just going down the wrong path. I, I didn't trust anybody. I hated the world. It hated me. Uh, I hated my mother because uh, remember when she put me on the train, I'm there 12 years old and she turned away and walked away and I'm watching her get smaller as the train left. And from that moment forward, I really thought my, my family hated me. Mm. Um, and so Christmas and Thanksgiving, I would stay wherever I was and I would, I refused to go home because I just didn't have any love to them. And uh, one night, my mom and I had a long conversation about that moment. And she burst out crying, too. And I said, OK, uh, what's going on here? She goes, John, the reason I turned away was because I started crying because I was putting my 12-year-old baby on a train by himself to go from New York to Virginia. And I just felt like a failure as a mother. I said, you know, it's interesting, Mom, because the perception of the little boy was one thing and I really hated you for it. But now that you're telling me what the truth is, it gives me a whole new lease on life. Right. And from that moment forward, we were just love, just all love. That was great. How old were you when that happened? Oh, let's see. When am I? Hmm. I'm going to guess in my 40s. Oh, wow. So how was your relationship with her prior to that? Because you hadn't known that and you had always had that childhood perception that they hated you. That's why she did that. It was uh, very strained. Um, as I mentioned, I really felt they hated me. So I started mm -hmm. hating them. Um, I didn't mm -hmm. engage with them. Uh, one, one Christmas, my mother called me. She goes, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm, I've got friends over. We're having a really nice dinner. Meanwhile, there's a, a pot of rice and a carrot on the counter. That was my Christmas dinner because I didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it was um, it was a lot of pain. And then, of course, I wanted to be in the film business. And uh, there was nobody I knew. Um, I didn't have any... Um, any connections to say, you know, to, you know, people that I could call and say, Hey, listen, I'm looking for a job. Um, can you uh, hook me up? It was none of that happening. So uh, 
I would struggle a lot with um, frustration that other people were getting work and I wasn't. Mm. So I, I looked out one night across the, the, <laughs> the cab company, which I lived across the street from, and I saw nothing but these twinkling lights and I fell on my bed crying saying, I'm a failure, I'll never get anywhere. And something snapped and said, hold on a minute. You are not a failure. You can do exactly what you want. You just have to get your head sorted out and do the right thing and go out there and get what you want. If you don't do it for yourself, nobody else is going to do it for you. So mm -hmm. um, it went from there. Yeah, I resonate with that. Um, I do. There's a part of my story where I was literally on the streets wondering why the heck am I here? If nobody cares about me, like what's the point? And I had a choice, literally lay down in the gutter and just wait to die. Let somebody come murder me, use me, abuse me, whatever to end my life or get up and make my own way. And um, I think everybody has that ability to do that. They just have to dig deep. It's just sad that people have to actually go there when, you know, as kids, we really need that support. We need that love. We need that guidance. Um, another question I have is, did your mother ever tell you the reason why she put you on that train? Is it because of your behavioral problems that she witnessed that she didn't know how to handle? Is that why? Uh, yes, uh, it, there were a couple of reasons. One, it was the behavioral problem. She look in in that era, there was really not a lot of mental health opportunities. Right. Um, she didn't know how to deal with me. I was completely out of control. She tried to put food on the table for three kids but was trying to pay the rent, didn't have any other source of income. And um, and she said, you know, the truth of the matter is uh, the courts did give me that decision. Either you go to military school or reform school, and I couldn't see you going to jail. I knew it was the wrong place for you. Right. And I told her, well, maybe reform school would have been better because military school was the worst three years of my life. And she goes, did it teach you anything? And I sat there and thought for a while, I said, did I get anything out of that at all? And I thought, you know what? I did. I, I got a sense of discipline that if I need it, I know how to do it. And my wife says to me, when you set your mind on something, there's no stopping you. And, and I think that's partially came from the military training and discipline. Uh, and, and as I said, look, that school probably was wonderful for a lot of kids because I saw them all like excited and happy. They were wearing uniforms and everything. And I just wanted to throw up. I just couldn't stand it. So I think there's both sides of that. I came in a troubled child. Some of them didn't. So I'm, I don't want to be unkind to the school. It, it has everything to do with where I was as a human being. And the fact that they didn't know how to support children who had behavioral problems mentally. Like they didn't know, right? They just, all they know is you know, what they did to you, you know, which was just through physical um, discipline. They didn't know any other way. Um, no. Wow. Well, I'm glad that you rose above it and that you came out of that. What was, what would you say would be, I mean, you did mention how, I think that that's an important part of your story is that you had this mentor come to you to teach you sports. I truly feel like that might've been what changed the trajectory of your path. But I feel like there might be this other aha moment where maybe you came to the conclusion that, like you even mentioned it, like I got to get my head right. Would you say that that was your aha moment of I need to start healing, I need to start focusing on my mental health, or was there another moment? Well, I think um, I think it's building blocks because after um, another coach saw me playing soccer, 
he wanted me to, to wrestle. And I said, I don't know anything about wrestling. He goes, you're in my chemistry class, right? And I said, right. And he goes, you want to get an A in it? I said, yeah, of course. He goes, you're going to wrestle. <laughs> I think that's called blackmail. He goes, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so he tutored me every night and he taught me how to wrestle and I became undefeated in the tri-state championships. Wow. Um, so to answer your question, sports for me became an amazing outlet. I also played ice hockey um, and, and a couple other sports, but it gave me an opportunity to find a place where I could vent my anger because on the field, you can leave all your frustration. You run till you, you die and you keep running and, you know, you start to learn team sport too. So I had to rely on other people, which I was not comfortable with, but it got to a pretty decent point. Um, my hockey coach, bless his heart, the last year there, he called the team together. He says, okay, you've all seen Callis play for a long time, many years now. He says, did you ever notice anything about the way he plays? And I'm looking, well, where is he going with this? <laughs> and the team goes, no, coach, what? He goes, all right, there's two things that can buy, get by Callis, either the puck or the man. I've never seen both of them get by him. Now you've got to figure out why. He said, John, why is that? I said, they're not supposed to, right? <laughs> game. So again, it was a rough sport and I enjoyed the physicalness of it. Um, so going back to the aha moment, I think those were building blocks. Mentoring was a building block. When I moved to Colorado, um, I made a decision that nobody there knew me. They didn't know my background. They had no clue what I was about. So I thought, I'm going to play a little poker here. I'm not going to expose myself. I'm going to try to find a way to start doing something different. And, um, well, the first week was going really well until I read the entire book on, on the course I wanted to take in theater. And the teacher said something about chapter one. And I said, uh, that's not right. He said, Mr. Callis, I've been teaching theater for the last 10 years. I said, no, good for you. But in chapter 10, it contradicts it. So this is not right. Something's wrong. Now, I didn't know it, but the head of the department was sitting behind me. Oops. Oops. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah that was a big oops. And he said, Mr. Callis, do you want to stay in this class? I said, not if you're not going to tell us the truth. <laughs> So I thought, okay, you really know how to set the reset button, don't you, pal? So I walk out and Judith calls me and says, uh, John. And I turn around and I went, oh, dear God, please don't tell me you were in class. She goes, you know, I'm really proud of you. I said, for what? She goes, I've been waiting for years for somebody to stand up to him, and you did. Good for you. I said, so what do we do from here? She goes, well, there's a guy in Denver Joey Fabre, who owns a theater, and he's never taken on a student, but he's a New Yorker. He's a little rough around the edges, but I'd like to try seeing if I can get you an apprenticeship there and sign you up for what's called the University Without Walls, which is for gifted children that know what they want to do. And you don't have to take classes, but you, you, do, uh, you uh, create a, a curriculum with the head of the department and the other teachers, and uh, you have your mentor. So I went down to the theater with, with Judith. And I'm looking around and the place was in shambles, a complete mess. Mm. And so Judith turns to Joey, said, Joey, this is John. He's the uh, apprentice I'd like you to consider. He looks and goes, hey, kid, I'm going to make this easy for you. I don't take on kids. I don't want to start doing like uh, reviews for you and all that. So this isn't going to work. I said, well, good. He says, what do you mean good? I said, you're from New York, aren't you? He goes, yeah. I said, 
look at this asshole of a place here. I said, you got to be kidding me. You need me more than I need you. I'm out here. Goodbye. Judith <laughs> goes like this. All right. He goes, wait a minute. Come back here. I said, what? He goes, where are you from? I said, Jersey. He says, no wonder you got a mouth on you. I said, yeah, and you got a problem on your hands here. If you think you're going to get this joint up and running without my help, you're nuts. Now, I, honest to God, Tiffany, I had no idea where that came out. But I, I was just, I just couldn't take it anymore. You know, I couldn't be rejected so ceremoniously without any cause. And he said, all right, let's give this a try. I said, I don't think so. He goes, what do you mean? I said, you have to apologize first. <laughs> no way. He said, I have to apologize. I said, yeah, you said some really nasty things. And I think you need to apologize. And then he looks, he goes, I'm sorry. I said, really heartfelt, but all right. Fair enough. Wow. Wow. He became almost a father to me. He took me under his wing. I did lighting for him. I did acting for him. I built sets. I stayed there 24-7 to help him out. And it, it was it was one of those moments. Now, during that period of time, a woman took me up to the mountains and introduced me to the mountains. And I fell in love with her up there. I just felt like, wow, this just feels right. Something's calling me here. And I found a little cabin, which turned out to be in a little cul-de-sac with two or three other cabins. It was the last group of houses before the National Forest of Colorado started. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I was six and a quarter miles from the nearest town. And I met this gentleman, um, Mark O'Brien, uh, we named OB, very spiritual guy. He was uh, studying law at Fordham and said, nope, going to go move to the mountains, can't stand it. And one night when we were playing, uh, um, we were taking a walk, he asked me what my background was and what I was about and all that. And I thought, oh, God. And, and I told him, I said, and he started teaching me meditation. He taught me life on a chessboard how there's strategies and things like that. But Tiffany, he gave me one of the greatest clues to my life I've ever had. He said, John, I've gotten to know you over the past, I think by this time it was about a year. You've got an amazing heart. Mm -hmm. You give, you give, you give. You gotta stop trying to forgive other people. I said, well, isn't that the process? He said, no, 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 no. You need to forgive yourself. Ooh. Forgive others. And yes. I, oh, that that went right and so um we worked together for years and stuff and he told me he was going to die by getting hit with lightning <laughs> I said, mark i don't know what you're smoking but i don't think you <laughs> should try some see what i'm going to die of <laughs> and so um while i was away at, at uh, summerstock i got a call and he lived between 100 foot ponderosa pines and my friend Jimmy was with him. <laughs> he went outside. Mark said, you want to come out? He goes, no, nah, stay inside. He goes, but the storm's coming. And Jimmy looks out because it's a clear sky. What are you talking about? So Jimmy's girlfriend goes out and he goes, do you feel it? She goes, no. He says, you know, lightning is pure spirituality. It's the greatest thrill you could ever have. And she goes, okay. And just about that time, a lightning bolt came through the ponderosa trees, hit him square in the chest, spun him around, hit the ground, and he was dead. Oh my gosh. Newspapers said it was a billion to one that first of all, lightning was not going to go through a tree. It'll hit a tree first because it's the tallest thing. It went around it and hit him. We found a diary that explained the whole thing, how he's going to die and all. It was spooky. But this wow. Man, yeah, he was spiritual. 
I'm like in shock right now. Like, whoa. Yeah. Because when you first started talking about the mountains and how that made you feel, I mean, God is omnipresent. He's in everything. And I think that's why when we go outside, some for some people, it's a beach. For some people, it's the mountains. You know, it's nature, just any place in nature. And wow, I wonder, I almost wonder if the fact that he was living out there for so long that he became so spiritually connected and in tune. And that's why he knew that. He was incredibly spiritually and connected. We did a lot of um, telepathy together. I mean, he taught me some pretty high level skills and things. And <clears throat> to this day, I still can think about things. Uh, he taught me like every place you meditate on earth connects you even further to the earth. And he said, so anytime you're having trouble and stuff, sit down and remember all the places you meditated and the energy will build like a pyramid almost. And it'll send wow. this incredible energy around you. It's helped a lot. Uh, Needless to say, I miss him really badly. I bet. I bet. Did yeah. you, did he, did you both experience um, grounding at all? Very much so. Um, he took me to the top of Loveland Pass, which is a very high pass in Colorado. And as the sun was setting, he said, you know, America, the beautiful. I said, yeah. He goes, look at the mountains over there. For Purple Mountain Majesty, the mountaintops mm. are purple. And we could see above the fruited plains, you could see literally out to Nebraska. That's how far you could see out. So it was like, even though it's an American song, it had such a spiritual impact on me. I started reconnecting with nature. I mean, a, a lot before that, but this kind of solidified my connection to nature and uh, my spiritual uh, path. And um, it, it was an amazing, uh -huh. and, uh, then it went to hell in a handbag again because I moved to Los Angeles from this beautiful mountain town uh, where I was happy and fulfilled. And I came here and first place I walk in, everyone started looking at me. And this girl sitting next to me says, you're not from around here, are you? I said, oh boy, no, uh, I just spoke <laughs> to you. Why? She goes, well, you got mountain boots on. You, you look like a lumberjack. <laughs> <laughs> you got some changes to do here. And that's, I was doing my master's degree uh, at that point in Occidental College in theater arts. And uh, that was another aha problem. I uh, was in class and all these kids started uh, ostracizing me because I had worked professionally. And I said, well, you know the answers to everything. You work professionally. And so I said, listen, I'm going to tell the whole class something just so we're all clear about something. If I knew everything, I wouldn't be sitting here with you idiots, you know? <laughs> I'm here to learn just like you guys are. And I wish you'd just get off my back. Head of the department called me in. Oh, my. <laughs> I always got called to the principal office. I don't know what it was about me. but And he said, um, I know you're sitting here wanting to be an actor. I said, I am. He says, I think you really need to look at being a director or a director of photography. Now, Chick Strand, a very famous documentarian, um, saw a film I made because that was one of the requirements in her class. And she said the exact same thing. So mm -hmm. I thought, okay, something's up. And I went to Omar and said, okay, what do you have up your sleeve? He goes, you want to get out of this in two years with a master's degree? I said, how am I going to do that? He goes, you'll work with me. I'm going to be your sole guy. And, but I'm going to work you to death. You're going to have to read three plays a week, analyze them, character, everything. I said, okay. So one day he hands me George Bernard Shaw. I come in to the conversation. I said, this, this, and this. And he goes, mm, I'm not so sure. I said, Omar, 
I, I know you're a very wise older gentleman than me and educated, but um, I'm not so sure you understand Bernard Shaw uh, really grassroots. He said, okay, I got an idea. He writes this thing down. He goes, here you go. Go to the library and pick up this book. I said, okay. So I go over to the library, hand it to the library, and she goes, oh, no, that's downstairs. And downstairs I go. Hand it to that librarian. So, oh, okay. So it brings this big book like this. So I open the page, and it says, world-leading authority on George Bernard Shaw, doctoral thesis, Omar Paxton. I went, <laughs> closed the book, slid it back, said, you read enough? I said, that's all I needed. <laughs> I the next day like this. He says, did you read the book? I said, nope, just the first page. He started. <laughs> and he said, look, I really respect you had an opinion. Now let's dig into why you had that opinion and let's focus on maybe how to, a different perspective. And when he said that, I don't know what clicked, but he gave me an opportunity to think that, okay, it was okay to have my perspective, but there may have been an alternative truth that was better or different. And that's what got me going with the book a lot, um, with the two voices that we'll talk about when you want to. Um, but he was an amazing human being. He never gave up on me. And, and it just got me confidence, uh, you know, in LA. Man, I, I just love your story, John, because it seems like, I almost feel like God was really watching over you because he kept sending you these people that were like, if you want this, then you need to do this. If you want this, then you need to do this. You know what I mean? And, but then the other important part is that you said yes, because if you hadn't, then there's no telling where your life would be. And I really want the listeners out there to acknowledge this because if anybody out there is experiencing any trouble sometimes, I know it might be hard to trust, but sometimes people will be put in front of you to help you. And I feel like you just got to give them a chance. Wouldn't you agree, John? 100%. And it's funny you said that because sometimes when I do my prayers to God, I'll, I'll, I'll ask for guidance. I won't ask for something because you don't ask God. For, you know, hey, God, can you let me win the lottery? That's that's a go away. Leave me alone. But I've asked for opportunities to work with good people and things like that. Now, what's interesting is they come, but he's sneaky. He doesn't mm -hmm. give it to me the way I want. He gives it to me in the way I need. Uh, and, I, and I've got to find that out. And I keep looking up going, I'm not Moses. I don't look good in sandals. Please. I don't want to wander around the desert. <laughs> So I love that. <laughs> so, he, he does work in mysterious ways. It's funny. Oh, he's got, he's got a, a hell of a sense of humor, let me tell you. <laughs> yes, he does. Yes, he does. When you build a relationship with God, it's it's a beautiful thing. And, and I love that you said that. It's never what you want. It's what you need. It's what you need. Oh, I just love it. Um, Wow. I feel like I could talk to you all day just all day with all your experiences. Um, but I really wanted you to touch on a little bit about your book, When the Rain Stops. Okay. Um, when the Rain Stops began with me journaling. I did this um, process called The Artist's Way. You're supposed to write like three pages a day for 12 weeks and then stop. Well, a year later, I was still writing three pages and, and I couldn't, I just couldn't stop for some reason. To this day, and this is like 30 years ago, four, four, maybe 40 years ago, I've never gone back and read what I wrote. 
Hmm. It, it was a process somehow that I needed, Tiffany, that got me thinking. And then I took some of the pages of the, uh, the book because uh, the therapist said, why don't you write out, you know, what you're feeling and stuff. And the next time I came in, I think the therapy session was on him because he was crying. saying, I don't know how you got through this. I just don't understand this at all. You, you really need to, you know, finish this book if that's what you want to call it. And so I started thinking about it. And I thought, how am I going to be honest with what I went through and how I came out of it? And how can that be of service to people? And I woke up in the middle of the night thinking, okay, I have to be just what I thought. I have to be honest. I have to say the truth. And, and I've got to rip the band-aids off, the scabs off, and let it bleed, whatever it takes. And my wife often came by the, the office seeing me type and crying my eyes out because I had to relive it. And I thought, I'm, I've got to tell it from two perspectives. One, the child going through it and his perspective on every action that happened. And then I put a little gray box in of the adult looking back and seeing the alternative truth, which we talked about earlier. You know, there's always two truths. So the more I did it now, I created a fictitious character and my editor and my wife jumped on me like a cheap suit saying, oh, no, you don't. Mm -mm. I said, what do you mean? No, I said, this book is you. This is all your, I said, yeah, but I want people to not know it's me. I said, no, it's you. They're not going to believe it. They're going to think this is all made up. If you tell it like you are honest and raw, let them understand what you went through from your real perspective. Use your real name. And I took a deep breath thinking, am I ready to, to expose all that? And my wife says, John, you've always helped a lot of people that you talk to people all the time. Do it. And that's what motivated me to have the two voices in the book. And in a lot of ways, Tiffany, by reliving so much of it, I got to let go of things I didn't even realize I still was holding on to because reliving it made me realize I had buried it just to deal with it. And that was not a good thing to do. And a woman therapist convinced me to go from uh, individual therapy to group therapy, which I was scared to death of. And I felt really comfortable after a couple of sessions and started opening up and we all had a great time together. I'm still in touch with several of those people. And, uh, and that's 40 years ago. Um, wow. But to the, between the therapy and writing the book, uh, I think it was something that just went, I can get all that junk off my shoulders. I can trust in, in God, knowing that I, what I need, he's going to give me whether I like it or not. And I have to deal with it. And, if in that period of time, if somebody reads my book and it changes their life, I'd be happy. So I give it to this guy that I met on Facebook who does book reviews. And I said, Tony, would you mind reading this? And if you want to say nice things, you can review it. If you don't, don't say anything. He wrote back and said, that's very funny. Let me read the book. After he read the book, his wife sent me an email saying, I want you to know that after Tony and I read your book over the weekend, he went over and he picked up the phone and he called his mother who hadn't spoken to him in 10 years. Wow. And she's back in his life now. But mm. okay, the book worked. And it did exactly what I, I set out, which is if it helps somebody, I'll be really very proud of myself. Um, then from there, I joined a group called Magnify Your Message, uh, Cheryl Hunter's group. And I came in just wanting to sell books and she gets people on major media. She's been on TEDx she's been all over the news. I mean, the woman is absolutely drop dead brilliant. 
and so are her coaches. Um, they, they are amazing. So in the first month or two, they kept wanting me to go this direction. I kept writing back saying, but I want to sell books. They said, mm -hmm. yeah, but you're a mental health expert. I said, yeah. <laughs> and um, through their coaching and guidance, I realized that the way I could really help so many people is to share my experience. Yeah. And they have got me on major media. I've been published on Fox, uh, uh, Yahoo, Digital Journal, The Good Men's Project. I mean, they really pushed me hard. And as a writer, I was welcoming the chore. Uh, it was a boatload of work. It still is because I'm still with the Icon Group. Um, but the coaching is phenomenal. Now, when you get to the graduate level that I'm at, you get to be put in front of um, media gatekeepers who can put you on television to help you know, your story. The secret sauce is unbelievable. It, it, what they do to make you come alive is just amazing. So that's, uh, that's been a fantastic journey and uh, I can't thank them enough. Well, I think you're incredibly amazing because you were so willing and vulnerable to share your story, not only here on the podcast, but just everywhere else that you've been doing it and in your book. Um, I, I resonate because I too put my own story in a book to help other people. So, and I know I get it when you said that there was times when you were typing and you were crying, I, that yeah. happened to me too. Uh, cause writing is therapeutic, but I never put two and two together that when I was going to write the book, that that was going to happen, but yeah. Right. <laughs> but it's, um, it's very therapeutic and it's a beautiful thing. And I feel like by you being so open and honest, being a man, because I feel like a lot of the men in our world really need support. And I feel like there's, there's men like you, but they're far few between. And I hope that by men li listening to your story, that they're going to be inspired and motivated to step up and share their own story and step up for the other men in this world. Not to say that women can't help men, but, you know, there's something about men being together and understanding each other, just like there's a lot of women out there, women support groups and this and that. And so I just I really admire what you're doing. And um, I just hope that more men um, are encouraged by you and that they want to um, reach out to you, read your book um, and just, you know, use their God given voice to share. Because like you said, your your book, it helped that person. And like there's no telling how many other people your book has helped. And so I just thank you so very much for coming on to the podcast. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Tiffany. It's been a pleasure being with you. And um, anybody in your audience who uh, wants to talk, I can be reached through my website. Um, let's talk. I'm, I'm happy to be of service to you. Uh, uh, again, I'm not a licensed uh, therapist, so I can't give you advice, but we can certainly talk and I can Give you a few of the tools I've learned that I've developed that help me and other people get through traumas and anxiety. And believe it or not, you can learn to deal with it and, and overcome it. So let's talk. Now, if there's someone listening who's, I don't know, they're unsure, but you know that if they take that first step, that their whole life would change, what would you say to that person? Take a deep breath. Do not do anything that makes you uncomfortable. I learned that in depression, I was living in what I call, and I coined the phrase, a comfort zone. While it was safe there, 
and nobody could harm me and nobody could bother me. Uh, nobody could pick on me. I was really safe and I felt safe and secure there. It's the most dangerous place to be. And it's one of the most difficult places to come out of. So if you're in that position or if you really want to and you don't know how to, do something small. Don't try to do it all at once because it, it sets you up for failure. So if it means making your bed and the next day making your bed and taking a shower right away or, you know, finishing reading a book or something or anything that makes you comfortable, slowly do it. Now, as a man to man, I'm going to tell you, we were all brought up with the same idiotic notion. Men don't cry and we're not allowed to have feelings. That paradigm is changing and only we can change it. We need to learn to talk about our feelings. It's okay to have feelings. Doesn't mean you have to wallow in it, but if you're hurting, acknowledge it. I mean, when, when my wife says something, if it's painful, I'll tell her. I said, you know, when you said, uh, I'd rather throw the peas at you than pass them to you, that kind of hurt, and I don't know why. You know, I'm, I'm making a comic moment out of it because I don't want to get too buried into the depths of this, but um, if you're unsure, uh, do small steps, and by all means, uh, I'm here for you. So either email me, pick up the phone and call me, and we can talk through it. And again, I can't give you advice, but I can tell you from my experience what I did, you can tell me what's going on. I can offer you some tools to try out and see if they work. Oh, thank you so much, John. And to all you listeners out there, thanks for listening, and be sure to get a copy of John's book. We'll see you on the next episode. Bye now. Bye.